occasional thoughts. It's probably not, he's probably not a character. And these events, particularly this one, I don't think I've heard anyone say, I memorized 2 Kings 6, any verse in it. Um, so it is challenging. Please pray for me as we seek to move through it. But we're going to read First uh, Kings, excuse me, Second Kings six verses eight through seven two, and then we'll look at our text will be verses twenty four through seven two. But beginning at Second Kings six, verse eight. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, "In such and such a place shall be my camp." The man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Jehoram, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram, that's Ben-Hadad II, was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me, which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Great verse there. Verse 13, So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he, God, struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. When they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those who have taken captive, you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he, that is the king, prepared a great feast for them. 
And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. Again, that's King Ben-Hadad II. And the marauding bands of the Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. That was our text from two and a half years ago. Now, verse 24, our new passage. And you'll see this one's a little more challenging than the previous. Now, it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Then he said, May God do so, may God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat remains on him today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? While he was still talking with them, Behold, the messenger came down to him, and he said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, that's Elisha speaking, Behold, you will see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it. What an amazing story as these miracles and Judgments of God are upon Israel, and we'll see today that really the backdrop of Second Kings six twenty four and through seven is God's punishment 
for idolatry and then also God's blessing, which we'll hit at the very end today, beginning in chapter 7. Just to put some dates in our minds, Jehoram is the king of Israel here. Remember, there's also a Jehoram king of Judah, so it, it takes great care to sort them out at times. This king, Jehoram, reigned 12 years, uh, around 853 to 842 B.C., so in the mid-850 time frame. And then just a reminder, these Ben-Hadad, there were three of them. And the Bible doesn't say the first, the second, the third. So you read about Ben-Hadad the first back in First Kings 15, and he ruled from about 900 to 860, and Judah united to fight uh, against Israel with him. So that was the first Ben-Hadad you'll read about, around 900. And then our Ben-Hadad, the second, he ruled from 860 to 843. And he fought Ahab several times. If you remember in 1 Kings, he was fighting against Ahab. And ultimately, Ahab was killed by one of those archers that just let the arrow fly, and he got hit randomly, providentially. And then he's all through the time of Elisha. And then this man, Hazael, who Elisha anointed, he was an interim king from 843 to 800. And then the third, Ben-Hadad, around 800 to 770 in 2 Kings 12, we'll find him. So sometimes we read a name in the Bible, maybe John in the New Testament. Well, which John or James are you speaking of? Uh, it's similar here in First and Second Kings, so just... A little back backstory. I hope that's helpful. Just to, to ask the question, which one is it? Uh, as we as we read First and Second Kings, well, directly getting into our text, verse twenty four, it says, "Now it came about, or the Holman Christian Standard, which I've really enjoyed in, on Kings, says some time later." Now, did you catch the end of verse 23? And the marauding bands of the Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. And then verse 24 says, Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So between verses 23 and 24, was it months? Was it years? We don't know. And sometimes the Bible jumps uh, a lot of years in a short section as we observed in Genesis and other places. But we really don't know. But there was some gap. There was peace for a season. Then sometime later it comes to pass. And you can chew on that. And uh, it can be complicated. And even this whole section, the commentators have questions. Where does it fit in the history? We'll try to avoid that. Now, the previous uh, verses in chapter 6, we heard about this first assault where the king came down with an army with horses and chariots. It was a powerful army, and they had, had battled against Israel for years, uh, even decades. But those marauding bands had stopped. There was peace because of Elisha's idea to feed the enemy. So there was peace for a time, but now... Uh, regardless, the king of Aram said, forget about that peace. I don't care if you fed those people. Uh, I'm going to attack. And he does. He goes for the, the capital of Israel, which is Samaria. Yes, Samaria. And uh, much of our passage and primarily deals with Samaria. That's the context, the capital of Israel. Was there a question? Sorry. I missed it. Okay. Um, and it says that the king gathered all his army. 
Now, we saw a lot of the army gathering earlier, but it says all his army. So it's a massive assault upon Samaria. Uh, he did the same thing back in 1 Kings 20. You can read about that, which ultimately led to the the death of Ahab. And Samaria, just to, as a reminder, maybe the Douglases will bring a nice picture home for us, but it was built on a hill 300 feet above the valleys around it, north, west, and south, there was only uh, hills, and only one section to the east was open. But it was on this hill. It had defensive walls. We see the king, Jehoram, walking the walls. So it was, a, it was a powerful city and somewhat impenetrable. And we'll see that they surrounded it, but they didn't just uh, get into the city. And the city is sort of, sort of collapses from within. So that's Samaria. Verse 25. There was a great famine in Samaria. Mark those words. There was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they, the army of the Arameans, besieged it. They surrounded it. They attacked it until a donkey's head was sold for this 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. A passage that most preachers would not choose for their text. Right, Tom? But it's within the scripture, and, and it's funny, and yet it's, it's grievous what's coming here. There had been famines in Israel before, of course, during the time of Elijah. Uh, but now, here, there was a f- severe famine, and it was a, a great opportunity for the enemy to attack because the Israelites were starving. They were already in trouble. The question is, why did the Arameans attack? Why did they attack? Why, why have they been attacking, had they been attacking for decades? Well, it's because God promised to punish idolatry with the enemy attacking his people, as well as with famine. And really, that's the backdrop. And please turn over to Leviticus 26. Excuse me, Leviticus chapter 26. We're challenged to find uh, these backstories, if you will, for our Old Testament narrative. I'm going to read several verses from Leviticus 26. And just as we read these verses, think in your mind, Israel had a great famine And they had a great enemy attacking them. Leviticus 26, beginning at verse 1. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. Thus you will eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. You see the connection? 
Verse 10, you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. Those are, that's the introduction and the blessings of Leviticus 26. Now, the penalties for disobedience, verse 14. But, if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, also you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. Verse 20. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. Verse 26. When I, that's God speaking, when I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven. And they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts, in little bits, so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Yet in spite of this, yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, verse 29. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. You will eat. I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor it. God was serious in dealing with his covenant people. Israel, the people of God, the covenant people of God. And he said, if you obey, you will be blessed. You'll have plenty. You'll have plenty of food. Your fields will yield all of this. But if you have idols and turn away from me, you will have famine and the sword and even cannibalism, which our passage will mention. It's shocking. So that's that's a bit of the, the backdrop. And that was 450 years or so before this. They probably forgot a lot of it, or we might even hear the king reference it in a bit. Yes, Tom. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I've, I discovered uh, just last night, speaking to my mother-in-law in Egypt, they had sellers going around saying, selling dove's dung for fuel. And so there are some questions about it. We'll hit it, but yes, um, it's, 
it's it's bizarre to us, but more common in some cultures. Thank you, Tom, for that point. Fertilization, yes, yes. Manure, as we use it in our gardens. We heard about Israel being warned, but also Judah, uh, God, God would speak to them, and Jeremiah references a, a drought uh, that would come to Judah, and he said, told them in Jeremiah 14, 12, I'm going to make an end of them by sword, famine, and pestilence. Just a reminder, again, that God took and takes idolatry seriously, and he punished his own covenant people with severity, for idolatry. So our first lesson, if you want to keep track, is guard yourselves from idols, for God hates them. We hear those words in, at the end of First John. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And I added, for God hates them. And that's what Leviticus speaks of. God abhors idolatry because he is a jealous God. He wants himself alone to be worshipped. He will not do 50-50 or 99% in one. It's exclusive worship to God alone that is required. What is idolatry? Well, simply, it's putting anything before God. And who's the biggest idol in the world? Ourselves. So you may think, well, I don't bow down to Buddha. I don't have some tree in my backyard that I... Uh, caress or bring fruit to or, or deal with in that regard. But if we're honest, and even as we've been exhorted, we are not the Lord. And sometimes we can think it, maybe driving, we can be arrogant and think everyone should pull over and let the king through. Uh, maybe some of you have dealt with that, uh, as I have, and it's sin. Because we make ourselves out to be the Lord, whether in the home or the workplace or the church or wherever, uh, we can be the biggest idol in our lives, and God tells us to guard our hearts from idols. And these stories of the Israelites, the warnings that God gave them, and we see the results, the fruit of their disobedience, which is sobering, uh, extremely sobering, and we see how God views sin, and ultimately we see it on the cross, that our idolatry had to be dealt with on the cross or in hell itself, and with great punishment, even on this earth. Uh, Paul told the Corinthians, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Galatians 5, we have the deeds of the flesh. We often think of the fruit of the Spirit, which we should, but the deeds of the flesh, three of them close together, are sensuality, idolatry, and sorcery. It's sandwiched in between those horrible deeds of the flesh. The consequences of sin are horrendous. Again, Read this section, read about the famines and the starvation, or again, look at the cross and see the consequences of how God has to deal with sin. Well, the siege of the Aramans was effective, their food was exhausted, and prices skyrocketed. Now, we complain a bit about our prices, our gas prices, the prices in the store, but that's nothing compared to what Israel observed, and maybe this was days, weeks, months, it seemed it went on for some time because they had to have this maybe black market prices, we don't know. But the local economy was devastated. And they didn't have in their mind, well, this could be over tomorrow, I'll just fast, I'll just not eat. No. This was looking like, it didn't have an end in sight. And you can see by what happens, it wasn't like just the next day that the, the women said, Let, let's eat our children. They were starving. 
So you can go maybe a month on water. You can you can go a long time without food, and you had a little bit in your house, I'm sure. But this famine was going on so long, and there was no way to get into Samaria because it was being besieged. It was surrounded. Well, the famine and then the siege caused the price of a donkey's head. Has anyone ever eaten donkey's head? I hope not. Uh, donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now, donkeys, of course, were used to ride on. We see it all through kings in the Bible. People rode on donkeys. They were also used to carry things. They were useful uh, beasts of burden. And yet, when all the food was gone, you would eat the donkey. Now, Leviticus 11.3 says donkey meat is forbidden. It was not kosher. Donkeys do not have split hooves. They do not chew the cud. It was forbidden to eat donkey meat. But they were desperate. They were starving to death. And they you've heard about people when they're starving, they chew on leather. They, they, they throw anything in the pot to try to gain sustenance. One donkey's head sold for this 89 shekels of silver. This language, sometimes I wish the translators would update it for us because it's complicated. But just to give you an idea, David, you know, many years earlier, almost 200, he bought a threshing floor and oxen for 50 shekels. So again, this donkey's head was 80 shekels. So maybe you say, well, that was... <laughs> A hundred and some years prior, well, King Solomon imported and exported horses right up my alley, imports and exports. Uh, he paid for those horses 150 shekels. So here were a half of a, of, of a head of a, just the head of the donkey was half the price of an entire horse. Or Jeremiah bought a field for 17 shekels. A field for 17 shekels, but a donkey's head for 80? Times were bad. And if the average worker earned one shekel a month, 80 months of labor to get a donkey's head, that shows you how extreme the situation was. I think we won't complain about our inflation much more. Then the dove's dung sold for five shekels. This is uh, in the column. You can see it's about a half quart. A half quart. What are you going to do with a half quart of dove's dung? How much, how much of that head could you cook? If indeed that's what it was meant for. Or, or half pint. Some say that it's not actually dung, but care beans or seeds or wild onions. I think uh, NIV has seed pods. It's difficult, you know, in the Bible when you read about a certain animal, they don't always know how to translate it. I kept thinking, could it be like chickpeas or pigeon peas or something of that nature because it's tiny little things. But whatever the case, this very small amount was going for five shekels, five months of pay to buy a little bit of fertilizer or whatever it was. It was horrific. Again, it's Hamam Zabul, this dove dung. The guy would go around Egypt and call out like in India, selling some doves dung whether for fertilizer or for cooking, what are you going to do with this little bit? Whether for food or fuel, the price was extremely high. Get, get a hold of that. Imagine spending months of your pay to get a few crumbs. It's happened around the world. People need a wheelbarrow of money in history to go buy something. 
And even in Isaiah, it speaks of men eating their own dung and drinking their own urine. Not to be offensive, but that's what the Bible talks about. That's the punishment of God for idolatry. Yes. Yes, very desperate, extremely desperate, and and it's about to get worse. And one author, the Puritan, Joseph Hall, said, Israel is famished by those it had fed. In verse, the previous verse, back to 2 Kings 6, they had feasted, they had given a great feast to the Arameans, whether it was weeks, months, or even years. Now that very enemy is starving them to death. Because of the siege. Verse 26. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. Of course, the people are going to see the king. We're starving here. Help us. It reminds me a bit of that woman who cried out and said, uh, The woman stole my baby and what should I do? And, and he said, Cut it in half. And she said, Don't do it. And he knew that was the real mother. It's, it's similar here in a bit if you think about that story. Verse 27, he said, that's Jer- um, Jehoram, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the f- threshing floor or from the wine press? Literally in the column. Note, note your, I hope you have some of you the column reference. It's, it's amazing here. Literally it says, No, let the Lord help you. The woman's asking for help, and the king says, No, let the Lord help you. Very arrogant, very wicked. He has no words of wisdom, no hope for this woman. So lesson two, woe unto kings who blame God for the fruit of their own sins. Woe unto kings or anyone who blame God for the fruit of their own sins. The consequence of idolatry was Famine was starvation, was an enemy attacking you. He should be leading in repentance. Maybe his conscience condemned him. Did you catch those words at the end? Where, where will I help you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? Remember Leviticus 26 we read, talked about threshing and grape gathering. Of course, they needed bread and they drank wine. These were staples. But maybe, reading between the lines, was he even thinking of that curse? At least I did after I read Leviticus 26. And remember, the threshing floor was at the gate of Samaria. So, depending on where this wall was in Samaria, uh, that's where the threshing floor was located, as an aside. Listen to Proverbs 16.10. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. In this case, his mouth erred in judgment when he told the woman, no, let the Lord help you. He's the king. He should have offered help to the people. But he did nothing. 
His character is summarized just a couple pages back in 2 Kings 3, 2 Kings 3, 2 and 3. Jehoram, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. So he was a little bit better than his father. Verse 3, nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. He was evil in the sight of the Lord. He's not a good man. He was evil. Verses 28 and 29. So the king, Jehoram, said to the, the woman, speaking to her and asking for help, he says, what is the matter with you? Sounds like something we'd say in, in English here in America. What's the matter with you? I'm sure there's more to it. And she answered, this woman, this other woman, said to me, Give me your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. Some think maybe the baby's already died of malnutrition, but when it says that the other one had hidden her son, it seems to me that they were alive and they were killed and it's it's horrifying. It's horrifying to us. Lesson three, be horrified and warned that the covenant people of God could eat their own children. Be horrified. We should be horrified and warned that even the covenant people of God could eat their own children. And this is not the only reference in the Bible. That's what disturbs me even more. Was this commonplace in this siege? We don't know. I hope it was a one-off. But I suspect it may have happened to even more. What One author said, What we witness in the text is not Syrian atrocity, but divine punishment. As we read in Leviticus, this was God's punishment for idolatry. God used the Syrians, the Arameans, but it was ultimately God's punishment. Let us think with Paul, who describes and wants to see when he compares the law of God, he sees sin as utterly sinful. We can have a small view of sin because we can have a small view of God. This was part of the judgment of God. I'm reading Romans right now. I just read Romans 1 the other day. And three times we hear what? God gave them up. God gave them over. In this case, God gave Israel over to debased and the lowest of low to eat your own babies. And people can say, yes, the world is getting worse, but the, this world has been very bad from the, since the fall in Genesis. And we, Tom's mentioned that point from Genesis. See the sinfulness of sin, even among the professing and the covenant people of God. It wasn't the Arameans who did this. It was Israel. We read it in Leviticus 26, 29. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. You will eat a punishment for idolatry. He gave them up. Or Deuteronomy 28, 55 repeats it and adds a little more. Toward her children, whom she bears, the, the mother, for she will eat them secretly. For lack of anything else, because there's a famine during the siege hundreds of years earlier, 
Israel would be surrounded and attacked, and there'd be famine and a siege, and women would eat their children, and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in the towns. Ezekiel later mentions the same thing. Because of all your abominations, therefore fathers, not just mothers, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers, for I will execute judgment on you. When we read at the end of John, little children, guard yourselves from idols, it's not a small commandment. Lord, give us grace to put to death the deeds of the flesh that we might live to walk with God. We have the power in Christ to destroy idols in our hearts primarily. Lamentations. Jeremiah was lamenting, should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? The hands of the compassionate women boiled their own children. They become food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. Lamentations 4, 10, and 11. Of all people who would take care of the children, the mother. A mother's heart is different than a father's heart. The mother has such compassion that she would take the knife and kill the baby. We can hardly say the words and eat it. Woe unto humanity. We need Christ. Josephus records, even in 70 AD, when when Rome is is killing Jews right and left, this Mary of Bethesda, it's known in Josephus' history, she did the same thing. At other points in history, Israel did the same thing. Why? It wasn't just that they're enemies and there was some natural phenomenon of the famine. It was God's judgment. Grievous. And again, we have idols in our hearts that we need by the power of Christ to slay, to cut off a hand, to pluck out an eye, the idol of self. And maybe beware of justifying sin because you have a felt need. I'm starving. I have to do it. I have this desire. I can't stop. I must have it right now. No, don't justify your sin. Maybe that's what these mothers did. How could they do it? Ultimately, it's the judgment of God. Verse 30 and 31. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Then he said, May God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Even wicked men can and ought to be shocked by the the atrocities of sin. We see it around the world. People see the Holocaust or what Pol Pot did uh, in in Cambodia or what uh, Mao did in China. We are shocked. We are grieved when, when we see mass shootings and even wicked people grieve. And even the king here, though he is very evil, he grieves. He had some common grace, if you will, that he, he was shocked And he tore his clothes when he heard what was going on. But he had the garb of grief, not the grief over sin. He only grieved that he saw this horrible situation. He should have had sackcloth on in front of the people and led in national repentance. 
because he was an evil man. He should have gone about in sackcloth grieving his own sins as he followed the sins of his mother and father and Jeroboam and led the people. He should have led in a national repentance. I thought of 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. He sorrowed, he grieved, he felt bad, but it didn't lead him to repentance at all. As a matter of fact, it led him to say, I'm going to kill Elisha for this. So he seems sympathetic, and there's some question about he had the underclothes of, of the sackcloth. Was there more to it? But ultimately, he says he caused, he has this curse on himself. May God kill me if I don't kill Elisha. He takes an oath, as his mother Jezebel did against Elijah. He was very like his mother and his father. His father called Elijah the troubler of Israel. And of course, his mother tried to kill Elisha, as we mentioned. Lesson four, woe unto those who invoke the name of God to instigate evil against the people of God. He called on the name of God to instigate, to bring forth evil on the prophet and man of God. He's using God's name for evil, seeking to. Woe unto those who instead of seeking to repent are seeking to revile. Woe unto those who blame others for the fruit of their own sins. He wanted Elisha's head. Although just a few verses, verses, it may have been months or years as we said. What did he call Elisha in verse 21? Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? He was grateful that Elisha had brought the enemy right into Samaria and he calls him his father. Now he calls him his enemy and wants to behead him. We might read between the lines, was he angry because that Elisha didn't let him kill the Arameans? That, that could be. He was so angry. Like They were under the knife. They were under the sword. You didn't let me kill them. You made me feast them. But again... He's a wicked king. Proverbs sixteen twelve. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts. It's that intense hatred God's ha- God has and had for kings who committed these abominable acts, these wicked acts, and He wants to kill the man of God. For a throne is established on righteousness, not wickedness, but righteousness. Proverbs sixteen twelve, verse thirty two. Now, Elisha was sitting in his house. Quite a shocking contrast. The king is in sackcloth. He's grieving. He's mourning. He's going to get Elisha. Elisha was sitting in his house, not only by himself, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see this son of a murderer? Some translate it just a murderer, but he is the son of a murderer, Ahab. Ahab killed Naboth, for example, and others. This son of a murderer has sent to take away my head. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. 
We don't know why the elders were with them. Maybe they were seeking counsel. Maybe they were praying with Elisha for repentance, a national repentance. Maybe they were praying, God, rescue us, help us. We don't know, but the elders were there with him. But I love those words, but before the messenger came to him, Elisha had a word from God. He knew what was coming. Lesson five, see and savor the power of God to protect his people. We saw it in the earlier chapter when the king is coming down and he wants to kill the king of Israel. Elisha knew about it. God had told him, even the servants of of uh, Aram, of, excuse me, um, uh, Ben-Hadad, his servants said, the king knows what you speak in your bedroom. It seems that Jehoram didn't know that. He didn't remember. He didn't realize that God can tell Elisha what's coming. God has the power to protect his children. Elisha was the man of God, the prophet of God. I thought of our favorite, one of our favorite hymns, that line, the protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. Abide with me. I like another one. Plagues and death around me fly till he bids I cannot die. Not a single shaft can hit till the God of love sees fit. God is able and protects his children and we're invincible until he kills us and takes us to heaven, as we've heard elsewhere. Jehoram was foolish and a wicked king and Elisha calls him the son of a murderer. It reminded me of Jesus telling the Jews, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and a liar and the father of lies. And Jehoram was the son of a murderer and therefore a murderer too in this context. He wants to murder the prophet of God. But he sends this messenger to lay hold of Elisha to have him beheaded. Some think it was actually the executioner. We don't know. But he was coming and they stop him. They hold the door shut. So maybe he was the executioner because they're holding the door shut to keep him out. Don't let him in because Jehoram's right behind. The king is coming right behind him. And then verse 33. While he was still talking with him, Behold, the messenger came down to him, and he said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now, this verse is complicated in the grammar, and there's different translations. Who's speaking? He, him. Ultimately, what what helped me to realize is this phrase, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? That's the messenger and ultimately the king speaking. He doesn't believe. He's given up on the Lord. He doesn't trust the Lord. He, He says, yeah, the evil's from the Lord. True, but he doesn't fear God. He is an evil hearted man. And he says, ultimately, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And then we'll see, excuse me, verse one, Elisha's response, but time is gone. So we'll pause there. Stay tuned. Uh, we, we only covered uh, this this first section as we thought about idolatry punished by God. And remember the backdrop that we read about in Leviticus 26, which clearly shows that famine and the sword of the enemy is a punishment on the people of God for idolatry. 
Well, I'd love to hear your comments and questions afterwards or even during lunchtime. Let's conclude with prayer. Almighty God, we we hurried through this passage, which is shocking, Lord, and we grieve over humanity and how evil we have become since the fall, Lord. We have been a wicked people. And yet, Lord, you are the God of grace, as we'll see in chapter 7, that you would relieve this famine, not because they deserved it, but because you are the God of all grace. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us of our heart idolatry. Lord, may we destroy that idol factory within, primarily of self. Lord, help us to drive better, to act better, to treat one another with much grace. And Lord, we rejoice in the cross of Christ that there you poured out your wrath upon idolaters like us to save us. Thank you for your mercy. And may we remember your word and may we understand Leviticus and Kings and all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We thank you for your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.